like to welcome everybody to Grace Reformed Baptist Church this morning. Appreciate you being here. Um, we need to remember this morning to uh, be in prayer for Andy and Gail and for Pastor as uh, they'll be traveling back. Uh, well, not Andy and Gail. They're traveling to Yellowstone. So, um, so but just give them traveling mercies. Pray that they, you know, have an enjoyable time, um, refreshing time off. Uh, our <coughs> announcements are in the <coughs> the handout, the bulletin. Um, we do have um, a children's choir this morning. Uh, I also would like to <coughs> remind uh, the men that uh, we are having, I think it's going to be this Tuesday, we're having men's Bible study. <coughs> over at the Dunkin' Donuts on 58 Highway, <clears throat> across from the Food City, uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> if you'd like to come out, it's an enjoyable time, good time of fellowship and study. Um, and so, yeah, I'd like to uh, see if we can get more men to come out to that. The women's Bible study, it says, is on hiatus for the summer. <clears throat> and uh, that's... Uh, that's about it this morning. So let's go ahead. <clears throat> let's go ahead and uh, pray this morning as we open the service. Gracious Father, we're thankful for your mercy and grace to us this morning, which is new every day, for this bright and sunny resurrection morning that we can gather together, that we can lift up your holy name and give you all the praise and honor and glory that you deserve. Help us this morning that the Spirit would speak to our hearts, would uh, instruct us, and uh, that we would be attentive listeners and to glean many precious truths this morning to, as we glorify you. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. One further announcement, the uh, youth choir will be meeting over in the apartments uh, after service, so we've got a little big, bit of a, a bigger area for them to, to practice, so just make sure you're, you're heading over there instead of over at the cottage. So, Well, let's take our hymn books and let's stand and let's turn to number 656. We'll sing the Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Second Samuel 22 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. 656.
members, uh, well, actually, it's the life of Christ. We'll have Jerry come. I'm jumping. You may be seated. Our life of Christ reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6 and verse 30, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to eat, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him on the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. <clears throat> and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's after three o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, and when he saw them walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their heart were hardened. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful that we have a Savior who transcends all physics and who is God of uh, all that he surveys and all of the world, Lord, that he uh, is the great provider, Lord, and he doesn't need uh, our provisions, Lord, but he is able to make do and to feed all. Lord, that he deems. Father, we just give you praise and honor and glory that we have such a great Savior and pray that now that you would bless us in the service that follows. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand again and take our hymn books and turn to number 446. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God born of his spirit, washed in his blood. 446. 
602, my Savior first of all. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Matthew 5, 8. Good morning, church. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through the end of the chapter. And here we have one of church history's most dramatic scenes. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking with a prophetic voice, confronting his Jewish brothers with their sin of preferring the traditions of man to the majesty of God and claiming to love the law of God, but not keeping it. And they could have responded with grief and repentance like Nineveh when they heard Jonah's message. But instead, we see them lay down their garments at a young man's feet. 
and stone the prophet to death. But God is sovereign, and his plan will always prevail. And that young man, Saul, will soon be one of the boldest proclaimers of the gospel. Let's go to the word of God. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Jonah when they had dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of their city and stoned him. And the witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning Stephen. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, He cried out with a loud voice, Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful morning that you have made. We thank you, Lord, for your holy word, which tells us of your love and your power and the examples of saints that went before us. Help us to have the courage and the hope of Stephen which comes from living a life of faithful obedience. Let us be willing, like we sang in this morning's hymn, to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. For we know that you provide for all our needs in this life, and beyond that, we have the hope of life in your presence forever. We thank you, Lord, for the fellowship we have here at Grace Reformed Baptist Church. We ask that you would bless this offering that it would be used to build up your church and show your glory to the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.
you, Amber. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love comforts us. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. For great is his faithful love to us. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Hallelujah. Let's stand once more and turn to number 96. Great is thy faithfulness. I remember quite vividly uh, attending a church service 
in which uh, the sermon was on the importance of tithing, which, which actually happened a lot in that church. And then at the end, suddenly, there was an altar call, and several people came up uh, to the front of the church uh, to go through a prayer to accept Jesus. But at no point was there any gospel presentation whatsoever. Now, it's actually possible to make a connection between giving and the gospel. Really, it's possible to uh, connect anything in Scripture to Christ, uh, but that didn't happen that day. So the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, did not come up at all that day. When those people came forward to get saved, what were they getting saved from? It's hard to say if uh, the only thing they heard is that God will bless you if you give to the church. So what are you being saved from? That is a key question. That prosperity gospel, it's, it's not the gospel because ultimately, ultimately we don't need to be saved from poverty and we certainly uh, don't need to be saved from not being rich enough yet or needing another car. Likewise, the, the therapeutic gospel, it's insufficient because we need more than being saved from loneliness or sadness or uh, especially a lack of self-acceptance. Being saved and regenerated uh, certainly can you know, reorient one's life in uh, such a way that it avoids all kinds of grief and heartache, but if you live your life with more wisdom and less foolishness, you certainly can improve your life. But the sinner needs saving from more than that. And really, if you think about it, every commercial uh, you ever see sets up some new framework for what they think you need to be safe from. Just buy that vacation package to Florida to be safe from the stress and the boredom of your normal daily life. Just buy this product and you'll be safe from being overweight or uh, having the blemishes on the skin or uh, whatever else that uh, commercial's about. Or if you just pop open the that TikTok app, and you'll be saved from even having to think about anything at all. And that's the gospel of entertainment, a popular one in our country today. That's why amusement comes from a muse, so being without a muse. Though no muse means that uh, no reason to be educated anymore, uh, no reason to have your, any attention span that's worth anything anymore. But the Bible tells us what uh, the sinner must be saved from. Uh, this text is in... Romans 3, but uh, the foundation of this question is already laid back in chapter 1 of Romans. Uh, Verse 18 says, uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's why uh, the sinner needs saving, uh, the wrath of God. His righteous judgment of sin. Uh, He is holy, holy, holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. We can't expect God to defile heaven by admitting a sinner. Uh, We can't expect God to compromise his own holiness by baselessly acquitting the guilty. Some of our nation's countries are falling apart because they seem to like to needlessly acquit the guilty. The book of Hebrews agrees about what we need saving from. Chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The words of Jesus Tell us the same. If a man does not have eternal life, he is condemned already. The wrath of God remains on him. John 3, 18 and 36. You might have heard people talk about uh, how much they prefer the Bible translations uh, in Romans that use the term propitiation or propitiatory sacrifice at Romans 3.25 where it gets into the gospel. And that part of Romans 3, uh, that's the paragraph that's after 
today's text, where it really gets into the good news of the gospel. Uh, that's a paragraph that John Piper called the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. So I guess this sermon is right before that super <laughs> important paragraph. When, uh, this verse gets, when this verse gets to uh, a description uh, of uh, the Bible, that Christ Jesus is he whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that word, propiti- uh, propitiation, it provides a more complete uh, picture because the word describes not just a, a covering of sin, uh, but a, a turning aside of the wrath of God or an appeasement of the wrath of God. The bad news of the wrath of God has been satisfied by the blood of Christ. And it's good news that we can obtain this by faith in that atoning sacrifice. Uh, so that's why uh, you can see in the bulletin, uh, the title of this sermon is Disvangelicalism. Uh, Disvangelicalism is, I consider it the opposite of evangelicalism, or the flip side of it. Uh, it's hard to know if, if that term evangelical even has any substantive meaning left anymore, but it originally meant a, a Bible believer that is concerned with the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. So this opposite side of this is that we must also be disvangelicals, or solemn proclaimers of the bad news, because the bad news is a prerequisite for the good news. Uh, With the wrong diagnosis, you won't prescribe the right medicine. If you don't accurately define the problem, you won't find the right solution. And one aspect of not being ashamed of the gospel is for us to be unashamed as to the necessity of the gospel. Uh, But we're not disvangelicals uh, because we're a bunch of mean-spirited, grumpy, judgmental people. Uh, it's actually quite the opposite, if you think about it. Uh, when, you, when we realize that we were dead in sin and saved by grace alone, there's no room left for pride and boasting. That's what Romans 327 uh, says. Then what becomes of boasting? Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. We must also be disvangelicals because it rightly honors the God that saved us. It honors God's wise and loving plan for our redemption. It honors Christ's sacrificial offering of himself. And it honors the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, almost uh, any evangelical out there would be uh, willing to come on Sunday and sing the song Amazing Grace, about grace that saved a wretch like me. But in a lot of these churches, if you ask uh, enough questions, you'll find out they don't actually believe the wretch like me part anymore. After all, you can't very well be seeker-sensitive while bringing up the whole wretchedness thing too much. Uh, but if convicting the world of sin is what the Holy Spirit of doing, is doing, uh, John sixteen eight, then who are we to shy, shy away from that task? Why would we expect uh, the Holy Spirit to be involved in our seeker-sensitivity that's avoiding his work? Uh, further, one aspect of the bad news, uh, one aspect of our sinful nature— is that the default human heart does not contend for soli deo gloria, but, uh, does n- but instead seeks for its own glory. Uh, with uh, the false religions of the world, you can earn your salvation. And, that kind of, and when that kind of thinking infects Christianity, uh, we're left with a synergistic partnership in which we contribute to our salvation. That synergistic partnership is contrasted with biblical 
monergism, meaning the work of one, where God is the one who did the deed of delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13. What that synergistic partnership says, well, sure, faith might be a gift, but it was me that opened it. Uh, of course, we agree that you're responsible for your repentance and faith. You'll be judged otherwise. Uh, but that kind of emphasis actually doesn't really exclude boasting, does it? Instead, uh, it excludes a robust understanding of the bad news. And you might try to stay, uh, just stay out of the theological debate by trying to find some middle ground, uh, but there really is no middle ground between synergism and monergism. There just is no third category. When a baby is born, we congratulate the mother, not the baby. Uh, it's the same thing with being born again. <laughs> we praise God. Uh, there's no synergism with, I was blind, but now I see. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, nobody tried to give Lazarus partial credit for participating in the miracle. Uh, Jesus said about the miracle in John 11, uh, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And that can be the problem. With some of our Roman Catholic friends, for example, we don't accuse them of being completely works-based. They understand that grace is necessary but not sufficient. And that's where that synergism can come in. Uh, one of the things that helped me bring into the Reformed camp uh, myself uh, was clarifying the misconceptions about Reformed theology. A lot of the attacks against it ended up being straw men. There were inaccurate descriptions of what we believe. Uh, for example, one might have the misconception that the doctrine called total depravity uh, means that humans are basically as bad as they could possibly be. Uh, but that's not really what we're saying at all. Uh, Jesus talked about sinners who could still do good things in one, one sense of the word. Uh, he said in Luke 11, uh, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Uh, in making this point, Jesus took it for granted that typically parents would naturally have a desire to do right for their own family. Uh, and why is, why is that? The reason is that the Bible doesn't just teach us about sinful nature, but perhaps even more foundationally to our humanity. Uh, it teaches us about the imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God. So we believe both of those things. Only Christians can understand human nature uh, by grasping these two realities together. All mankind is made in God's image, and also that we live in a Genesis 3 world in which all of Adam's race has fallen in sin. So just this week, a, a teenage atheist uh, wrote to me about uh, this misconception. Uh, he wrote, Here's the thing. If you don't have God watching over you, would you just rape and murder all you wanted? If so, I beg you, never stop believing in God, please. I personally have never needed religion to try to be a good person. I try to do as little harm and as much good as I can. That's it. That's how my parents raised me, to be empathetic and a good person. Uh, and they weren't terribly religious. My mom was a pagan. I've never once considered murdering or raping someone, even after I became an atheist. So but how could we respond to that? Uh, the thing is, it doesn't surprise us the least bit that an evil father buys food for his kids. And it doesn't surprise us uh, that an atheist innately has some moral compass because they are made in the image of God. One aspect of the Mago Dei is that the law of God is written on their hearts. Romans 2 tells us this, verses 14 and 15. When Gentiles who do not have the law 
by nature do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So, uh, John MacArthur has described this moral awareness as almost a sixth sense that all people have, are born with their five natural senses, and also the sixth sense that we know some things are wrong. Uh, so when some moral questions are patently obvious, that obviousness does not mean that the Bible is unnecessary. Instead, that moral obviousness means that you can't even begin to make sense of the universe without recognizing God as our creator, that we're account- the, the creator that we're accountable to, and as the transcendent standard of what is good. That's why it ends up being a contradiction when atheist Richard Dawkins says, there's no such thing as good and evil, but also says that organized religion is evil. We kind of get stuck with that. And it's also a contradiction when my atheist friend uh, says there's no inherent value to human life, but it's obvious that murder is wrong. It's kind of some, uh, if we're not created in God's image, then the difference between good and evil is at the same level of, I like Pope instead, Coke instead of Pepsi. Just a personal preference. If there is no God, then the difference between good and evil is also at the same level as flipping a coin. Uh, just another meaningless, random event. Uh, but all of us know good and evil, whether, uh, even those that claim they don't believe. Uh, and when our secular friends see good and evil with us, they appeal to a standard that can only exist in God's universe. So it turns out that the Christian can explain the good atheist, but that good atheist can't even explain his own goodness. In Romans 1, uh, one foundational aspect of sinful nature is idolatry. That's easy to see with this repetition of the word exchange. It paints a picture of sin as idolatry. They, uh, verse 23 they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Though God made us, and he made us in our image. So there's a sense that every human knows God. Romans says about the sinful pagan world, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It says, it says they knew God. Uh, even the, unbelie- even the unbeliever, in a sense, knows God. Verse 19 also says, what can be known about God is plain to them. Uh, God made us in such a way that we know he made us. Uh, I like how Saiten Brutenkart uh, calls himself an a-atheist because he doesn't believe in atheists. This should make us all the more confident and unashamed in our gospel proclamation uh, because even the sinner that is dead and blind and enslaved to sin has this image of God as a point of correspondence uh, so, that, uh, what the, so that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit can uh, speak to that. And, well, if we innately know our creator who made us in his image, then why so much unbelief? The answer comes from uh, another, a second foundational aspect of sinful nature, suppression. Uh, a suppression of our innate knowledge of God. Going back to verse 18 again of Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. James White compares this suppression to pushing down a basketball in water because the ball always pops back up again. Then 
more suppression is necessary. So there's this active, ongoing thing. God's image is so strongly uh, stamped uh, onto our hearts. This sinful suppression of this knowledge, it needs to be active and constant. Uh, That's why some atheists talk about God more than I do. Uh, The need for a constant suppression of what they know about God. That's why some of the deviant behaviors we read about in chapter 1, in our society, that's why they demand a never-ending affirmation and celebration. They're begging for assistance with the difficult work of suppressing their their knowledge of God. Uh, So once again, this should inspire confidence in our gospel proclamation because our audience already knows that they are not right with our Creator. You don't need to memorize every scientific and philosophical proof before sharing your faith. In the same words of Saitan uh, Brutenkart again, how much evidence do you need to believe in a God that says you already have enough? Okay, um, so far we've covered that the bad news is a prerequisite for the good news, and we have also covered that even the sinner is made in the image of God. Uh, with those things covered, we can come to our text in Romans 3, 9 to 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Uh, I mentioned that uh, clearing up misconceptions helped bring me into the Reformed camp. There's one more thing that helped uh, make me a Reformed theologian, and that's just the proclamation of God's word from the pulpit. Some people might mischaracterize Reformed theology as coming from a, a cold and calculated system of logical inferences, but that's not it at all. Uh, Everything that I believe about the doctrine of total depravity is simply what we can see here in this text from the Apostle Paul. There are three simple points today that uh, are in the bulletin. First, all of us. Sinful nature affects every single son and daughter of Adam. Uh, Second, all of me. Uh, Sinful nature permeates every aspect of who we are. Uh, Third, all the way dead. When the unbeliever is under the power of the law and sin, uh, and under the power of sin, uh, he is not able to respond positively to God. So our first point is all of us. Uh, One simple introductory aspect of total depravity is that sinful nature is the default state for all of humanity. Uh, Of course, we're not including the unique circumstance of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, but everyone else includes us. Uh, This is incredibly clear from this text. It's uh, incredibly clear from the context of Romans and uh, also from the rest of Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments. Really, the entire structure and organization of the early chapters of Romans make this point for us about the 
universality of sin. Chapter 1 uh, depicts a, a harrowing but accurate description of sinful nature. But then in chapter 2 and 3, the apostle, he widens his net to make it abundantly clear that he's even talking about God's chosen people, the Jews, as well. For example, in 2.12, For all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Uh, It's a kind of argument that points out that the least likely people to have this problem do indeed have this problem too, uh, so that it really must include everyone. Jesus said, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It wasn't, oh, just skip the Jews because they already have the Old Testament and then skip the Stoic philosophers because they have a pretty good handle on the basics of morality and then just try to find some really obviously bad pagans. Uh, it inclu- the Great Commission was for all men. And we see this theme of pagans, Jews, everybody continuing in this text in verses 9 through 12. Uh, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he says this so strongly that later in Romans he needs to explain, well, actually, there are, there are still some advantages of being Jews. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Uh, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Though, if you wonder why Pastor Wayne likes to give parallel passages it's, uh, and give other scripture to explain scripture, it's not just a tradition or it's not just because we like Puritans. Uh, it's, it's the apostolic model. Here's uh, the Apostle Paul giving a chain of scripture references to prove his point. Uh, he, gives, he makes this lightning fast chain of quotations from the Old Testament scriptures uh, that help to prove what he is uh, asserting. Uh, the first part Uh, In this first part here, um, 9 to 12, we saw this uh, clip of the Old Testament that came from either Psalm 14 or 53 that had similar beginnings to those two psalms. Uh, One thing that I like in Bibles isn't just which translation it is, but whether or not it has these uh, Old Testament references at the bottom. One fruitful exercise it did as a somewhat new Christian was to read the whole New Testament, and every time I got to an Old Testament citation— I would go back and read that whole chapter in the Old Testament. And then when I would read the whole Bible again, I'd be a little more aware of that uh, intertextual connectivity of Scripture. And that exercise ended up uh, to help inoculate me from this rampant unbelief that infects Bible scholarship, Uh, specifically the the scholars out there that would chide the Apostle Paul for taking Old Testament Bible verses out of context, uh, as if they knew better than the Apostle Paul, uh, as if the apostles would be abusing Scripture. Uh, With these citations, the relevancy of their original context is there. Both Psalms 14 and 53 both start with the line, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This ties in very well with the themes Paul established in chapter 1. Paul didn't uh, invent this idea that the sinner suppresses his innate knowledge of God. He just explained it very well. It's right here from the psalmist. Uh, That's why we've already covered a little bit about how the unbeliever becomes a fool, whenever he attempts to accuse God, or whenever he claims independence from him who made us in his image. At the end of this quotation chain, Paul returns to his assertion that this sinful nature problem includes even those that possess God's law, and that not a single person will ever be saved by being a good enough person. 
in uh, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And if we continue on further in the chapter, uh, the verse that so many of us have memorized, uh, 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How devious it was that the serpent said, you will not surely die, when the result ended up being mortality for all of humanity. Uh, if you ever meet an immortal being that is not subject to the fall, then perhaps we don't need to share the gospel with them. Uh, but we know better. It's painful and scary, but it is the truth. Uh, when Ecclesiastes 7 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Uh, it's included in the context as some of Ecclesiastes' depressing existentialism. Uh, sure, you can live a, a righteous life, but you're still going to die. When King David felt the weight of his sin after Bathsheba, he traced the disease of his sin all the way back to, to his conception into the fallen race of Adam. In Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The, the rugged individualism that we have so often in America, in American culture, uh, it might cause us to chafe against concepts like federal headship, uh, but the reality is uh, we are in Adam's family, and you are on Adam's team, uh, and you did sin with him. When I typed this up on my computer, it wanted me to spell it like the Adam's family, but that's a, that's a different Adam's family. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Though it's, uh, again, it offends the individualism of America, but uh, we did sin in Adam. And if we were there, we would have as well. If we go back, uh, back once again to remembering my early days of uh, uh, attending a charismatic church, I also remember very clearly the pastor's wife telling me about their friend, uh, her friend, who prayed to God to search her heart for something to repent of. But that day, uh, apparently as the story goes, uh, God, God spoke to her and said that there was no sin in her heart at that moment and that there's nothing to uh, repent of. Uh, so she was just able to enjoy worshiping God in a state of sinlessness. So obviously there's some problems with <laughs> that kind of conclusion. Uh, probably would jump to your mind, First uh, John 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The Apostle Paul could have made his proof text quotation chain a lot longer if he wanted to. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? John Owen wrote a whole book on that psalm. There's a similar idea in Psalm 143. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Proverbs 20 also asks the rhetorical question, Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Solomon's prayer included the words, There is no man who does not sin. 
We're also familiar with the passage in Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So the scriptural teaching is clear. It's just that the reality of the situation is weighty. Further, the world and its sin and suppression of the knowledge of God tends to be offended by any universal truth claim. Uh, some of the perverse behaviors that are the poster child examples of rebellion against our creator that we see in Romans 1, those perverse behaviors are supposed to be celebrated in today's society. They would condemn us for not cheering them on in their perversity. Uh, so if we're not even supposed to condemn them, who are we to send missionaries to the Jewish people? Uh, it reminds me that when I was uh, a student, we had a, a good family friend. Uh, this was before I started believing and attending a church in college. Uh, he was an uh, African-American from the south side of Chicago, surrounded by gangs. But he did the right thing, studied hard, and became a physics teacher. Uh, when I was stuck in my AP physics class, uh, he helped me get through it. But when he got cancer, he was faced with mortality. Uh, he already had become a conservative, libertarian type. But then what he did is he fully converted to Judaism. Uh, he went through the whole, the whole process uh, to do that. But when he died of cancer, it didn't seem like he ever converted to Christianity. But of course, it's possible. You never know. I certainly hope so. But we don't know that. And that haunts me, and uh, I imagine it haunts my mother as well. Uh, all we can do in that situation is repeat what Father Abraham said in Genesis 18. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? But what we can do now is we can pray for our friends that are with us, and we could pray for our family that is still alive. And we can pray for and support our missionary partners. That's why I love that bulletin board downstairs. So after this first point of all of us, uh, the second point is all of me. And this gets even more to what we mean by the term total depravity. Uh, the sinful nature is also comprehensive in every aspect of our being, every aspect of who we are. Reminds me that uh, Dennis Prager, uh, a conservative Jew, recently took many people by surprise for emphasizing that his religion is more about what you do and not what is in your heart. I guess he might have overlooked uh, the parts about not coveting or about loving your neighbor and some of those. Uh, he pushed back against the teachings of Jesus that warned against adultery of the heart, uh, saying, and this is his exact quote, there is only one way to commit adultery in Judaism, and it's with a different organ. Uh, he wasn't defending pornography, but he was excusing it as not being all that bad. Uh, we know better because God took on flesh and told us better. And here in this text, Paul's quotation chain, it transitions from communicating the extensiveness of sin in all of us to communicating the intensiveness of sin in all of me. So here in the text, uh, Paul depicts the uh, intensive and pervasive effects of our sinful nature. It kind of paints a picture of like a, a head, shoulders, knees, and toes kind of imagery, uh, all of us. It includes our head and our feet and everything in between. This quotation chain gives us this... Uh, uh, it starts off by grabbing more Psalms, uh, 5, 140, 10, 36, and also some of Isaiah 59. If you uh, listen to Albert Moeller's briefing podcast with me, you've probably heard him every once in a while uh, use a term called uh, talking about 
the noetic effects of sin. That's a, a fancy term for all the ways that our thinking is not what it should be in a Genesis 3 world. That uh, noetic thinking sin uh, covers everything from our fallible forgetfulness uh, to our twisted ideas that invent evil and try to justify evil. Romans 1 already laid a foundation for addressing that connection between the idolatrous suppression of our knowing God and other noetic sins. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And uh, verse 22, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their th- thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Oops. Uh, claiming, uh, here's verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Uh, Paul's quotation chain brings back the noetic sins, the sins of the mind. Uh, in verse 10 of our text, No one understands. This quotes a context in Psalm 14 adds, they have no knowledge. And the context of Psalm 53 adds, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. And it turns out the answer is no. And then he adds, have those who work evil have no knowledge and do not call upon God? And actually, I guess you could argue that this sermon is seeker-sensitive if God is seeking throughout the earth to see if any are righteous and says that there are no. So I'm sensitive to God the seeker today. And then we run into the will, our desires, what we want. No one seeks for God. Uh, They're not seeking after God because they're seeking after evil. So before we get to these actions of the sins we do, the desires of our heart set us on the trajectory towards that sin. The, uh, the context of Psalm 36 warns us, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. If we go back to that uh, Dennis Prager point I mentioned, uh, what if a, a man tries to cheat on his wife, but his car breaks down on the way, or the woman he's trying to meet is too busy to meet that day? God prevented that sin from happening. That's one way God restrains evil. But that desire to sin is still a serious problem that needs repenting of. The context of uh, Psalm 53 describes those that encamp against you. Uh, Before the sin itself, there is the plotting and the scheming of those evil desires. The context of Psalm 140 mentions violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. The context of Psalm 10 adds, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. So only after uh, the head and the heart, actually in Korean, those are the same word, uh, only after the head and the heart do we get to the sins that Prager was more concerned with. Uh, There is not one who does good, not even one. The context of Isaiah 59 describes that connection between the will, the desires of the heart, and those actions. Uh, the second half of Psalm 59.7 says, Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Uh, that's that second half of Isaiah 59.7. In this quotation chain, the apostle, he quoted the first half of that verse and the verse after that, and he, for time, he skipped over that part uh, that I just read. And then he goes on to the next verse, Isaiah 59.8, because he wanted to hurry up and get to the point, saying, Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
this completes that uh, head-to-toes imagery that communicates that our sinful nature is all over all of us and gets to the point of that actual sin. At this point, uh, the, the picture gives us is that the sinner is using his feet to run headlong into the wickedness and violence. But there was one more important part in the middle of his quotation chain. In describing our sinful nature from head to toes, he mentions four different body parts that are all involved with the sin of our words. We've got throats, we've got our tongues, our lips, and our mouths. Though we've heard that, you know, sticks and stones proverb, but frankly, the Bible has a lot to say about the sins that we commit with our words. Uh, The dishonesty, the selective, uncharitable misrepresentation, uh, the gossip, etc., we know that uh, James one twenty six says that your religion is worthless if you do not bridle your tongue. Then going on to James 3, the tongue is that little rudder that uh, can set the whole ship uh, into a crash and a burn. I remember that John Piper once said that if you want to see him sin, just go to the Wednesday night service. And what he means by that is on Sunday, he has enough time to write out his whole sermon. Uh, on Sunday, he has enough time to write out the whole sermon transcript. And on Wednesday, he doesn't have time to write out the whole sermon transcript. So he figures, if I'm going to be spontaneously speaking, I'm probably going to sin at some point. Uh, because it's that easy to sin with your words. Uh, sinful nature. So our points were sinful nature in all of us. Sinful nature in all of me. And thirdly, lastly, another vital point to understand what we do mean by total depravity is we'll call it all the way dead. In, uh, in our John 3.16 class, we talked about dead means dead. When the sinner is blind and dead and enslaved to sin, it's not even possible for that sinner to respond positively to God without any divine intervention first that, uh, that would kickstart that new life, uh, that regeneration, that, that gift of faith. But when we say that, when we say that it's impossible for the sinner to respond positively to God, we're not saying that God is being unfair. God's not saying that you have to slam dunk a basketball net that's 30 feet up in the air to be saved. Uh, this, is, this impossibility is a moral impossibility. The sinner is so thoroughly evil that, as it turns out, he's not going to want to choose to do the right thing until God's unmerited grace would come first and make a decisive change in the heart. Uh, If there's one thing that is clear about the first three chapters of Romans, it's that the sinner is without excuse. In this life, you will hear an endless stream of accusations and excuses about how very uh, unfair and terrible it is that God would dare to judge us. A good example is the, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens said, religion is a totalitarian belief. It's the wish to be a slave. It's the desire that there be an unalterable, unchallengeable, tyrannical authority who can convict you of thought crime while you are asleep, uh, you can subje- uh, who can subject you to a total surveillance around the clock every waking and sleeping minute of your life before you're born and even worse, and where the real fun begins after you're dead. A celestial North Korea... Who wants this to be true? Who but a slave who desires such a ghastly fate? But Hebrews warns us that 
it is, a, I think it's 927, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Today, Hitchens is not with us anymore, and he's no longer able to raise such grievances. On that day of judgment for all of us, uh, verse 19 of our text, it tells us that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Uh, there is an expiration date to the sinner's ability to suppress the knowledge of God. For now, uh, it's our job simply to be unashamed in our gospel proclamation. This idea that every mouth will be silenced, it echoes what the apostle already wrote in Romans 1, that the sinner is without excuse because he is made in the image of God. You might hear that objection a lot that, oh, what about what about that tribe in Africa that didn't get the chance to hear the gospel yet? Well, then let's send missionaries. But the key problem is not their lack of information. But the key problem is a sinful suppression of the knowledge we do have as human beings made in his image. Uh, sure, again, we should send more missionaries to unreached people groups. But the sinner made in God's image is without excuse. Going back to Romans 1.19 uh, and following. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And many of you uh, know uh, that my daughter downstairs is named after verse 20. It says that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And her name, Cathora, means she sees clearly uh, from this text. But since the sinner sees clearly, uh, he is without excuse. Uh, that word without excuse is anapologetus, uh, uh, meaning they are without an apologetic. Uh, they're without any possible defense of what they have done. But hopefully uh, you're also listening to the sermon and you would want me to show you that in the text. It's not emphasized nearly as much as it is in chapter 8, uh, but the beginning hints of this are here in chapter 3 as well. And that's, by the way, why we spent uh, so many weeks, almost too many weeks, in ministry training classes talking about our theology of Scripture. Because since we know that all Scripture is God-breathed, we're able to make points and observations even from small details and word choices. Jesus and the Apostle Paul uh, both made their points from the Old Testament, sometimes from just plural, singular, little, little tiny differences between a word. So let's go back up to verse 9 in our text. All? Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Uh, he didn't just say in sin, but under sin. So we'd want to think about what it might mean in Paul's mind when he talks about being under sin. Now, Paul and the rest of Scripture often personify sin, even from the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, sin is crouching at your door. And Paul especially is masterful with the way he personifies sin to communicate the urgency of this battle to us. Uh, here is no different. Uh, in Scripture, we often see that imagery of that conquering king placing his feet over vanquished enemies, and this is somewhat similar. All mankind is under the dominion of sin. 
earlier, I mentioned the man who might say, well, sure, faith is a gift, but it's up to me to open that gift. Not if you are under the dominion of sin. Then it's simply not going to happen. Paul, to be clear, Paul returns to this idea in chapter 8 and explains it more fully in uh, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you would think that believing in Christ would please God. You're not going to joyfully exchange presents with somebody you hate. And the sinner left to his own devices is never going to get around to repentance or faith. The Ethiopian can't change his skin. The leopard can't change his spots. And the sinner left to his own devices will not stop suppressing the knowledge of God and will not cease his hostility towards his maker unless God saves him in his sin. Romans, I love that Romans 5 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in the trespass and sins. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And if you think about that gift analogy, what if you can't even see the gift of faith or the goodness of that gift? That's the blindness of sin. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So all scripture is God-breathed, but sometimes it helps people on these tough issues uh, to see the same idea straight from the words of Jesus himself. He said a, a bad tree can't bear fruit, after all. And Gordon covered uh, this uh, in his uh, class on the book about John 3.16, when he covered that dead means dead part of his uh, book. Now, a doctor, he might knock on the patient's knee with that reflex hammer, but they're not going to do that at the morgue if you're dead in sin. In John 3.3, 3, unless a man is already born again, he's simply not going to see the kingdom of God. In John 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's some of that same idea of our text in verse 9 of being under sin. Uh, and Jesus is clear and explicit about what the implications of this are. Uh, in 8.43, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. In verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God's. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And maybe even more clearly, we see in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 6.43, and looking at verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So that, those are the three points about sinful nature that uh, come from the text. It's all of us, it's all of me, and the sinner is all the way dead unless God intervenes. So we are made in God's image, and that's why Hamlet said, 
What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. In form and moving. How express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. But we are also under sin. That's why Hamlet also said, Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? But we know that our solution is not to get to a nunnery, but our solution is to proclaim the gospel to all men. When Carl Sagan gazed at the cosmos, he called Earth a pale blue dot, just an insignificant nothing in the endless stretch of galaxies and emptiness. And now these days it's popular to speculate about multiverse stuff. Uh, That's like a pale blue dot on steroids. If everything is happening everywhere all at once, nothing matters at all. But when King David was stargazing, he wrote something entirely different about mankind in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now let's take a moment to prayerfully reflect and respond to God's word, whether that is thankfulness for being saved, praying for the lost, uh, or whatever else God would put on our hearts. message and it's one to to really ponder I remember myself you know thinking that uh, you know at some point you know I'm because of my uh, own ability I was able to realize what a sinner I was and it wasn't until I really started studying the scriptures that I realized it wasn't me, <laughs> not at all. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who opened my eyes and uh, that all praise uh, goes to God and uh, it's not of anything that I did. And uh, So let's all stand. Let's turn to 149 in our hymnals. Praise him, praise him, 149.
go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for our message this morning. And we pray that the word of Christ would now dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And whatsoever we do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.